Please be seated. So today's really not Sunday, today's Thursday. Last Thursday, just get that in your mind, because last Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension. The Feast of the Ascension is always on a Thursday, because it's 40 days after Easter Sunday. So we can do the, the Feast of the Ascension on Sunday, Ascension Sunday, which is a Sunday, which is actually 54, okay, just forget about it. <laughs> just remember that today we're celebrating the Feast of the Ascension. Now, it's a very peculiar kind of a feast day, because it doesn't sort of fit into things like Easter and Christmas. It, it, it's not mentioned much in the Bible. We hear it about it really in terms of Jesus ascending into heaven um, in two different places. It's, they're both written by um, the person who wrote the Gospel, Luke. And one is in the very last bit of the Gospel, and the next is in the very first part of Acts. And we actually read both of those descriptions this morning. One was the first reading, and the other one was the Gospel. But they follow each other back to back in Luke's work, which was the Gospel and the book of Acts. So the only place where we hear about Jesus actually ascending is in Luke. Now Matthew talks about going, going to Galilee with Jesus, the apostles with Jesus, and, and Jesus giving them the assignment to go into all the world and to preach the word, but he doesn't actually ascend into heaven. That in and of itself is, I think, a very peculiar um, incident. I am reminded of the great church in Pembroke in England and there is the stained glass window in that church. And what you see is, is the assembled uh, apostles all sort of looking up into heaven. And all that you see is Jesus' feet. At the very top of the window, you see just two feet kind of hanging in the air, which, of course, symbolizes the fact that Jesus is, is rising up into heaven. It's, it's sort of like, like watching um, a very slow rocket take off. You know, you kind of watch, and Jesus goes up and up and up. And finally, there's just a little pin hole in the sky um, that was Jesus, and then he's gone. And then he's gone. And, and what strikes me about this moment is, is, is how it must have felt to be an apostle and watching that, that sort of gradual ascension into heaven. It was kind of like me watching the basketball game the other day when at the last very second, Paul Pierce makes the shot, and it looks like a three-pointer that's going to tie the game. And what happens? The referee said it didn't count, right? <laughs> it's like all that hope and, and all that expectation, and all of a sudden, it's gone in a flash. Jesus is gone, and the wizards' hope are gone. Not that they're equal, but that's the way I felt. So there was a, a professor at um, seminary who taught homiletics long after I left. And one of the things I used to like to ask people is, is what is the color of your sermon? What is the color of the story? So now I want to put you in that place where we're standing there in this field and we're watching the, our beloved Jesus rise up into heaven. And I want to ask you a question. What is the color of that moment for you? What is the color of that moment as you watch Jesus disappear? Thinking of color. Golden. Why golden, Bruce?
I, I, it's okay. Bright light, so it's golden. Anybody else? What's the color? Okay. Blue. Why? Blue sky, blue water. Yep. Yep. I love that. What else? Anybody else? Anybody have a color that comes to mind? Gene? White. Why white? It's all come together in that moment. You agree? It's the white. Anybody else? Any color? Yes, Mary? Okay, why black? I love that. We didn't hear that earlier today. Sad. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's red. Well, it's kind of a dark burgundy color. Red. When I was growing up, when I was real little, um, and we visited my grandparents occasionally, we traveled a lot being a military family, and we went to visit my grandmother, there was, she lived downstairs, and, and my aunt and uncle lived upstairs, and there were like seven of us, so we would we'd be scattered amongst the house. And I was consigned to sleep on a cot in my grandmother's bedroom. And my grandmother's bedroom was right next to the kitchen, right next to the kitchen. So when I fell asleep on a Saturday evening, and when I woke up really early to go to church with her on Sunday morning, I would, the first smell would be the spaghetti sauce cooking on the stove, which was, of course, red. And that smell, that smell of, of that fresh tomatoes and the olive oil and the little bit of wine and the green herbs, all that was in that big pot would just infuse inside my memory. It just filled me. So when I shut my eyes now, I can actually smell the smell of my grandmother's kitchen as we prepared for the Sunday meal, which, of course, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, all my cousins and all my aunts and all my uncles would come from all over the south of Boston, and they'd all come and sit at this great big table for the family meal, which for me, of course, was thrilling. And there were the five or six courses, and there was the pasta, and there was the smell of that incredible sauce just boiling away in the kitchen. They say that the olfactory that sense is the one that stays with us. And I think when I close my eyes and I think about that, it brings me right back to that moment. And I wonder if for the apostles, if, if there wasn't a smell associated that day, my imagination says it's the acacia tree, the thorn tree that was so so ubiquitous in that part of the world. And as it bloomed, they could smell the blooms of the acacia. And wherever they were for the rest of their lives, in the spring when the acacia bloomed, be able to remember that moment, that glorious golden and dark moment when Jesus finally left for the last time. My mother learned how to make that sauce from my grandmother. And my mother taught me how to make that sauce. And just a year and a half ago, my youngest daughter, Emily, in her kitchen said, Pop, show me how to make the sauce. The sauce. Each time it's a little different. Each time it's not quite what it was before. Different flavors, different smells. But over and over through the generations, that same sense of the spaghetti sauce 
in my family has grown and pulled us together and kept us together. And I just wonder if that one moment in their lives, if the apostles didn't see Jesus rise up, and that was a vision, a moment that they stuck with their entire lives, and, and we are their descendants. And they passed on that recipe to us, the recipe of Jesus being with us, and then Jesus not being with us. And we still live into that recipe because we are the sons and the daughters of those very people. Now, one of the things that I'm struck with is, is, is that, that there's two sides to that coin. There's the memory side, but there has to be the other side. And Bruce talked about that. There has to be the imagination side. There has to be the future side. If, if we're caught in the memories of that moment, then we're caught in this sort of, 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 of nostalgic sense of Groundhog Day, sort of a Christian Groundhog Day, stuck in that moment over and over and over again. But if we can see the other side of that coin, the other side of that coin is, is the imagination of going beyond that moment. I was reading a wonderful thing this week, and, and it was written by a man named Garrett Green. And Green is, is a, a, a specialist in the biblical languages. And he said that the word heart, cardia in Greek, um, and lal, I think, in, in Hebrew, that the best translation for the word heart in the scriptures is the word to imagine. The word heart is imagination. So when we say at the Eucharist, lift up our hearts, what we are doing is we're asking us to lift up our imaginations, to be able to see something that we can't quite see yet, to be someplace where we aren't yet, to be in a different place, to be at a different time, to be in that moment there with Jesus, not just as Jesus ascends into heaven, but Jesus with us now. It's the same coin. It's the memories that, that trigger us. And, and it's that sense of imagining the future. So take a moment. What's your, what's the essential hmm, scent, the aroma in your memory? Maybe, it, maybe it's the ocean at low tide, or, or, or maybe it's, it's, it's the, the pines in the mountains someplace, or, or maybe it's the smell of diesel fuel in the middle of New York City. But take just a moment, close your eyes, and get in touch with that, that scent, that aroma that brings you in touch with something important in your life. Smell it now. Bring it out of your memory. Let it fill your mind and let it bring you back who's there with you. What's your feeling? How does that sustain you? How does that sustain you? We all must have that, that imagination in our mind, whether it was our mother's perfume or whether it was the flowers in the back garden. We all have that moment, and it is sustaining and that moment when Jesus ascended was a sustaining moment for the disciples. But if they stayed there, only there, then we wouldn't be here today. The other side of the coin is to imagine. Lift up your hearts. Lift up your imagination to what God has to offer to the world around us, to who we are and where we are now that God is here and all around us in Jesus. The future for this 
This baby is so bright. This baby who today entered into this family in a new way. And that nostalgia, that history, that memory will live in that child as he grows more and more in the faith. But the future also rests in that precious little body. So each and every one of us lives into that moment that we remember that sustains us. But we also live into the hope and the joy of the future that is to come. Because Jesus has not left. And if Jesus has left, then Jesus has promised to come back. Jesus is there in each and every one of us, waiting to be reborn, waiting to come back to life, if we just open ourselves up. So I want to end with a portion of a poem. Um, one of my favorite poets, contemporary poets, is David White, uh, a Northumberman, a man from England. And he writes about telling his son, his, his infant son, a story and singing to him to sleep. And this is the back, the second half of the poem. Now, by the small body of my sleeping son, the hidden river in my chest flows with my sons, and I time my speech to the rhythm of his breath, joining my night with his, singing his night song, as if those waters underground were secret rivers washing through the soul, bringing out the untold life which is the stream he'll join in growing old. In silent hours, when his sureness of his self recedes, there he'll find the rest between the solid notes and makes the song worthwhile. The night between the days that give the lighted hours a form and grace, so may he find the light enters what the night has brought and he be given entrance to that rest, gladdened and quiet with breath, until the pale house swells with light, morning is come, and the faith he has in nights fulfilled. And the faith he has in nights fulfilled. Whether we see that moment, that sustaining moment when Jesus ascends never more to walk the earth as he did, whether we see it as golden or white or, or as we see it as darkness and pain and grief, the promise is, is the light ends and the morning comes and faith is restored. Amen.